as we come to our last message on prayer. I really hope this series has been helpful to you, and I realize that some people, it just, you know, some people probably will not, have not been implementing the things we've been talking about, but I really hope that um, it has empowered you or giving you, given you the sort of pathway forward to empower you and equip you for a more powerful prayer life, a more effective prayer life. And in some ways, everything we have said about prayer so far for the last four weeks has brought us to this moment we are at right now because we're going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer. Now, I was torn as to whether or not I should even preach the Lord's Prayer because it's so familiar to us, isn't it? Like, I would just guess, I'm just gonna take a shot here, that like, like even for those of us who didn't grow up as Christians, I mean, in the Western world, most people know this prayer. And for those of us who have grown up around it and saying it, we're probably so familiar with it that it's just, it just kind of rolls right off of us. We just, I mean, it's just, I, I thought, should I even preach on this passage? But the more I thought about it and the more I prayed about it, the more I realized that the fact that we are so familiar with it probably makes us even more in need of revisiting it because we're actually unfamiliar with it. So that's kind of the danger of the things that we take for granted. The things that we are so familiar with, we take for granted. And so I thought, um, and the Lord, I believe, has led me to talk about this. One of the reasons why I think it's really important to focus on, the name of our sermon this morning is God's blueprint for prayer, is this is the only place in the Bible where we're taught not just how to pray, but what to say. The only place in the entire Bible where we're taught not just how to pray, but what actually to say. And the one teaching us what to say is Jesus himself. So we ought to pay very close attention to it, and I'm going to try not to make it boring, okay? That's a, that's a challenge that I have as a preacher, is to take things you're familiar with and spice it up and help shine a light on it that makes it interesting. So uh, the prayer Jesus taught his disciples, as I've said, is in many ways a blueprint for all praying. And whatever amenities or add-ons we incorporate later into our prayer life must first be built on this foundational design for prayer. All right, so we're talking about the Lord's Prayer. It's a foundation of all prayer, like a blueprint, right? Whatever, whatever accoutrements or things you add on later, you have to sort of at least understand the blueprint first. And that's the goal this morning. So the Lord's Prayer is recorded in two separate places, Luke 11 and Matthew chapter 6. And uh, they differ slightly. Now, some scholars take doublets and triplets in the Gospels where Jesus it's like the same event or the same speech, which is slightly different, and they, they try to harmonize them. And what I think is more compelling is that Jesus, as a traveling or itinerant preacher, going from city to city and town to town in Judea and Samaria and Galilee, would have taught and preached the same lessons and sermons over and over again in a slightly different way each time. So 
uh, we have a couple former pastors in the room. I'm a pastor, and if I, there have been times where I have preached a sermon twice, and I never preached that same sermon exactly the same. I may tweak it a little bit based on my context or the event. I may say something a little differently. And we find that that is true in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, where, for example, um, Jesus uh, is, when he talks about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, he is actually responding against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who you know, didn't pray to God. They, were, they prayed hypocritically. They wanted people to see them. Whereas in Luke chapter 11, um, Jesus is responding to a question the disciples had when they saw Jesus praying. So uh, I don't think they're in conflict. If I see two different versions, I say, well, I, I believe Jesus said both. So Luke's version, version is shorter. Matthew's version is longer. And I, I look at that, and I believe that uh, there were two separate occasions that Jesus shared the outline of this prayer. And we have other examples of that also in the Gospels. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And in Luke, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. There's no contradiction. I believe Jesus said both. And both are true, right? Those who recognize their spirit impoverishment without God are poor in spirit, although they may not be actually poor. And those who are actually poor are blessed by God and loved by God because he cares for them and supplies all their physical needs. And so in the same way, Matthew and Luke record two versions of the prayer. So let's read Luke 11, 1 through 11, and I have added what Luke is missing, I have supplemented Matthew's words so that both versions together sort of dovetail for what we're going to read. I'm only going to cover the Lord's Prayer. There is a second section we're going to read, which is sort of a follow-up statement, um, an example illustration Jesus gives. Luke 11 and 1, this is the Word of God. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, so think of a very small home where everyone sleeps together in the same room. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is, friend, because he is his friend, uh, yet because of his impudence or persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone, and the one who seeks, finds. 
and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let me pray for us for a moment. Father, we thank you now for this, hear your word, this instruction and teaching from Jesus, our Savior. Illuminate our hearts and minds that we might receive the power and meaning and depth of Christ's words on prayer. In his name we pray, amen. The first thing you notice, or hopefully you noticed about the Lord's Prayer is it is brief, simple, and direct. It's really short. It's really simple, and it's straightforward. It's brief. You don't have to devote tons of time to have meaningful prayer. It is simple. Nothing about it is complicated or requires skill. And it's direct. It addresses God directly with no need of an intermediary. In other words, when we pray, we can pray directly to God, and we don't need someone to go to God for us, either another human being or Mary or the saints or whoever that might be. We don't need an intermediary. We can pray directly to God. And the prayer begins with, as scholars have called it, the sanctification of God's name. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the word hallowed just means holy or sacred. It is a declaration. It is a direct communication with God, but that also asks for God's name to be made sacred or hallowed. You've heard the phrase someone said, you're standing on hallowed ground, right? Maybe the site of a battlefield or a graveyard. It's hallowed ground, right? It is sacred. And so the name of God, when we pray, is to be made sacred. Notice how warm and personal that is, but it's also reverent. Warm and personal, also reverent, right? Warm and personal, also reverent. One of the things, the amazing things about this prayer, which is, doesn't feel amazing for us because we're familiar with it, we're used to it, but in the first century, for Jesus to say, when you pray, call God your Father, was an absolute revolution in the first century. And it's an acknowledgement that, well, we're God's children. And that's really important when you pray to acknowledge and realize that you're God's kids. We're God's kids. God's our father. God's our dad. Now, maybe too much have been, has been made of we should call God daddy, and I've never done that. It feels a little bit weird, but, but in, in, in whatever way God is a child's father, dad, or daddy, in prayer we ought to feel that warmth that personal access and connection in the same way that a child is able to go directly to a parent and not be afraid. I hope for those of you who are parents, and I see some parents with kids, when your kids need something from you, they just ask. They're not worried or afraid, and your love for them wants to oblige them, unless they're asking for something outrageous. 
but they have direct access to you. They can come to you. They can ask you openly, and there's a warmth there. I'm seeing a son grab a hold of his father's arm right now, and it touches my heart because I think about our ability to be close to God and to talk to God with warmth and personal love and access. And so that is, I think, the first thing the Lord's Prayer teaches us is that we have this direct personal access to God. We don't need an intermediary. We don't need to pray to someone to pray to God for us. Now, you can say to someone, pray for me, right? That's, that's different. We're recruiting help in prayer, but we ought not to ever feel that we cannot go directly to God. We need someone else who's sort of holier than us or closer to God than us or someone who God will hear because well, we're just mere mortals, that's not what the text gives us. It gives us this idea that we can go to God as our Father. On the flip side of that, we're not equals with God, and so we revere his name. We, we pay him reverence and honor and respect. And I think... This is one of the reasons why the commandment is there to honor your mother and your father, right? Because we can be prone as we get older to not reverence our parents as much. You know, even as your parents get old and you take care of them, you can be tempted to kind of see yourself as an equal. And um, my mother, she's going to be moving here in July, and there's a lot of things we're going to do for mom uh, but I'm not my mother's equal. I, I'm always obligated to honor my mother. I may disagree with her. We may have strong disagreements. I may annoy her. Sometimes she may annoy me. But she's my mother and I love her and I'm obligated to honor her just as I honored my father while he was still alive. Well, not always perfectly. The Lord's Prayer captures that. The Lord's Prayer captures this idea that God is our father. He's our dad. But, you know, don't get it twisted now. Like, God is... He's, he's still our father. He's still God, and we still need to respect God and revere God. And so to hallow the name of God honors the third uh, commandment also to not take the name of the Lord in vain. Exodus 20 and 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So in the Lord's Prayer's first line, it already sort of pays tribute to two commandments. Honor your mother and father and do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now Jesus' whole purpose was to exalt the name of God in his ministry. He says in John 17 and 6, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Jesus came to glorify the name of God. So it makes sense, right? That in the prayer he teaches us, we would glorify the name of God. Hallowed be your name. And not just some generic concept of God, but the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of David and Solomon. So here's an application point for you, okay? Brief and informal prayer should still honor God, okay? There's the first application point for you. Brief and informal prayer, which is fine, still should honor God. So even though we can be casual with God, we can come to God, you know, 
on our knees or going for a walk or driving to in our, for our daily commute, we ought still in our heart to revere and reverence the Lord as God. The second petition is a petition or a request for the kingdom of God to come, the coming of the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now I personally believe, and I want you to perk up your ears for a moment about for what I'm about to say. This is the single most important thing I believe a Christian can pray. This, this ought to be the pinnacle of all prayer requests is this request right here. Your kingdom come. I, I believe it's just the most important thing we can pray among all the things we pray. Now someone recently asked me, in a, in a, I was on the phone with a friend of mine who lives in a different state and he brought up the kingdom and he says, Jordan, he says, I gotta admit, like, I don't think I really know what the kingdom is. Um, I'm not even sure I know like, what it is. is. What is the kingdom? Is it here? Is it not here? Is it physical? Is it spiritual? Is it inside of me? Because you know, the New Testament says a lot about the kingdom. And a lot of ink has been spilled about the kingdom of God. There's a lot of confusion over this topic. <clears throat> and if you've ever felt that way, I want to tell you it's your lucky day. Because I'm going to tell you right now what the kingdom of God is, definitively, okay? Look at the second clause of that statement. The first says, your kingdom come, and the second says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that gives us the biggest clue as to what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is wherever the will of God is manifested. I mean, think about this. What makes heaven heaven? Well, it's the fact that God's perfect will reigns and rules. In heaven, nothing that isn't God's will is allowed. In heaven, it is God's perfect will totally, absolutely. God's absolute perfect will reigns and rules in heaven, and that's what makes heaven, heaven. So wherever God's will is manifested, wherever what God wants and desires exists, that's where the kingdom of God is. Now that's not all we can say about it. There's more we can say. We might ask then, well, what are you saying then, Jordan? Has the kingdom of God already come? Or is it entirely future? Well, here's the answer. You ready for it? The kingdom has come, but it doesn't come all at once. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom in his earthly ministry, in his life, obedient life, obedient death, and his resurrection. He inaugurated and launched the kingdom of God, which was a new era of God's will, which is in heaven, more and more being manifested on earth, which is essentially heaven coming to earth. And isn't it interesting that the vision of eternal glory is a new heaven and a new earth, which is to say an earth where heaven, essentially, it's heaven on earth. So the kingdom has come, but it doesn't come all at once. 
And I'm going to illustrate this principle with two what I think are the most important passages of Scripture about the kingdom. The first is Matthew 13, 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So the kingdom starts out small, but over time grows like the mighty sequoias which took millennia to become the largest trees on earth. Now, if you're not from California, it's a sight to behold. These are the largest and oldest trees on the planet, and they didn't pop up overnight. In fact, they're still growing. That's the kingdom. It starts out small, but it grows often imperceptibly. So if you, at any given moment in history, were to pull up a chair and look at a sequoia and say, I'm going to watch this thing grow. You could not perceive it. You could not appreciate it. But if you went away and came back 400 years later, you'd say, wow, this thing has really grown. And then if you went away and come back, came back 1,000 years later, you'd say, wow, this thing really has grown. That's the kingdom. That's what the kingdom does. That's what Jesus is saying the kingdom is like. At first, it starts out so small and imperceptibly, over time, gradually, it grows and grows and grows. And this is why Jesus encourages us to make this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Every day, let your kingdom come a little more. Every day, let your will be manifested on earth a little bit more, and the kingdom grows. It is slow and it is steady in the earth. The second parable is the very next passage of scripture. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, and by the way, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, no difference, no difference. Some people have made some kind of point that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, two different things. Nope, same thing. <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, leaven is yeast, and in some places in the Bible, leaven is referred to negatively as a metaphor for sin. Here, though, it's positive, okay? So it's used positively here. And it's used to convey the kingdom over time permeating the whole earth. And like yeast in a loaf of bread... It is not always visible to the world because it takes place with inner transformation of the heart, right? So the kingdom starts inside of people and then slowly has an outward effect as those individual people and the church collectively and corporately are transformed and have this permeating effect in the world. When we were singing... This morning, as our you know, worship leaders, our music leaders were leading us, I thought, we're few in number this morning, but we join a sort of cacophony of voices around the globe of Christians in all continents and countries worshiping God this morning with us. And you, you need a perspective like that to grab a hold of the, the kingdom of God. 
Because if you, if you have a short view of history and you have sort of just a, a very narrow view of your place and location, you will not be able to believe what I'm saying. That the kingdom has, over the last 2,000 years, permeated the whole earth and will continue to permeate the earth. And the kingdom of God is so important, it's at the top of Jesus' list of things we should ask for. Now, if I took a survey and said, how many of you regularly pray for the kingdom? I mean, don't raise your hands. I just, I'm just, I'm just going like, to lob this out there. I just suspect probably not many of us, right? We, 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 our concerns are much more personal. And that's okay, but somewhere in our repertoire of prayer and the things we ought to care about is the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus cared about. I mean, the gospels say that Jesus came to preaching the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, that's what Jesus was all about. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about bringing in the kingdom of God. Now, as just a sort of final statement on this, because I could, I mean, we, we could do like a five-part series on the kingdom alone, but I just want to say there will come a time where God's kingdom is fully and finally ushered in in its fullness, and it will be radical. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom is not present, and it doesn't mean that the kingdom is entirely spiritual. It has a physical manifestation, even though the kingdom of God is not of this physical world. So, again, more can be said about that, but here's an application point. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says that in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't seek it second, third, fourth, or fifth. Don't seek it 20th. Seek it first. So in all the things you're praying for and all the things you need God to do, it's not wrong. Take those things to God, but seek first the kingdom, not just in prayer, but in your life, in your actions. Let your life be a kingdom life. Let your actions embody kingdom goals, kingdom purposes, the things that Jesus came to preach about. The third petition is for daily provision. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, this may be the most distant petition for us as sort of modern Western people living in the first world who frankly are not starving, right? I, I would guess if I went to any of your homes, there'd be, you know, a dozen cans of goods in the cupboard and your fridge, you know, got some sandwich meat and fruit and ground beef or something. I mean, we're not... And praise God for that, right? Praise God for abundance. Um, and so we live lives of sort of abundance and supply. There may be lots of things we see our need for, but daily bread just isn't one of them. Now, whether you need daily bread or not, the universal principle here is don't become entangled in tomorrow's cares today. I believe that's what's happening here. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us today's bread. 
Now, some scholars have said, actually, this is a request for tomorrow's bread today. I, I personally don't see that. I think it's really just an encouragement that worry about today. Go to God today for whatever you need today. Because if you get so caught up about tomorrow and the future's needs, you actually will fumble today. Right? You'll, you'll fumble. You, you won't faithfully steward what's in front of you today. This is a verse about daily trust. Are you trusting God for your daily needs? Emotional, physical, financial, health, relational, vocational. That's what this is. It's an encouragement every day to pray or to embody in your mind and in your heart, Lord, whatever I need today, help me. Help me today. There are things on the horizon that are going to pop up today that I cannot see. Give me this day my daily bread. Give me this day my daily needs, my daily strength, my daily closeness with you, my daily wisdom. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I can't help but believe that much of the anxiety that we deal with, and I'm just, I know for a fact we all struggle with anxiety, because I do, much of the anxiety we wrestle with is related to future worry. So that's, that's a benefit and a sort of curse of the first world. Because we have so much of our, so much abundance, we, you know, we, we project out for the future. We've got three, five, ten year plans. And that's not bad, but I'm telling you, it can, it can really mess you up. Because as your heart is grounded in the promise of the future turning out the way you want it, and when it doesn't, it wrecks people's lives, and it's no wonder that we're suffering from uh, record high numbers of depression in our culture. We're more depressed than we've ever been. And it may just be because we're not trusting God for our daily needs, we're trying to figure out tomorrow. But if you know, you know the story of the Israelites in the wilderness, they were not to think too hard about tomorrow's manna. God said, you trust me for today. I'll give you manna for today. I'll give you your daily bread. I will help you today. You let me worry about tomorrow. You worry about today. You be faithful today and I'll take care of tomorrow. What are the, some of the things we worry about? You know, what if this, what if that? What if the stock market crashes? What if the housing market crashes? What if my children aren't successful and good people? What if my retirement isn't enough? What if I die in a plane crash? What if my children fall away from the faith? What if I get the coronavirus? I mean, these are all things that we cannot answer nor have specific guarantees for in this moment. And this is why we need faith, to trust in God for our daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, would you provide today's needs? Would you give us strength for today? Would you keep my children's faith today? Would you bring them back to the Lord today? Would you protect me today? Would you provide my needs for today? So here's an application point. Worry about tomorrow when tomorrow comes. Worry about tomorrow when tomorrow comes. 
Next and second to last is our regular need to be forgiven and to forgive others. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This is a request and acknowledgement that we not only need to be forgiven, we need to be forgiving. And they go hand in hand. Both Matthew and Luke ties those things together. The hope and expectation that God would forgive us of our sins, of course, is connected to the idea that we ought to, must be, have to be forgiving. God's boundless forgiveness pours into us, right? That's what it means to receive the grace of God. But it should also flow back out to those who sin against us. And at any given moment in your life, there are, there's someone along the spectrum of offense. There's someone you've got beef with, right? There's someone you've got tensions with. There's someone you're not talking to at the moment or someone who has, you know, grieved or offended you. And the responsibility we have, we can't always repair those relationships, I know somebody right now who is not talking to a loved one and they've done everything they possibly can to restore that relationship. But the, the onus on us is that whatever the cause of strife, we have to release that offense to the forgiveness of God in our hearts. In Matthew 18, 21, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, there's no limit. Now, if you thought, oh, really? I thought like number 78, we were free. We didn't have to. Like that's, you're misreading it. And you may say, that's silly, Jordan. I actually talked to somebody who said that to me. I mean, they were, they were dead convinced that like, no, after the 77th forgiveness, we're off the hook. I was like, no. No. And this person had been a Christian a long, long time. It's like, ah. You know, I Googled. I just simply Googled, okay? So take it for what it's worth. The power of forgiveness. That's what I Googled, all right? And this is what came back. A Harvard study suggests that forgiveness is associated with lower levels of depression, anxiety, and hostility. Reduced substance abuse, higher self-esteem, and greater life satisfaction. That's from Harvard Health. A John Hopkins University found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels in sleep, and reducing pain and blood pressure and levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. Tony Fakhry says, forgiveness does not erase the past but looks upon it with compassion. To withhold forgiveness keeps alive emotions of hurt, Anger and blame, which discolor your perception of life. Forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That is why it's such a powerful weapon. And Lewis B. Smead says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. I'm saying this for somebody here today. Somebody watching. Um, I know we're... we're, we're I don't want to drag on too long in our sermon this morning, but I feel the need to just sort of finish, wrap this up here in the next few minutes. One of the things I thought about as we were, as I was thinking about forgiveness is, um, you know, cancel culture, right? 
So there's kind of a political hot topic, and I think we're all witnessing it, aren't we? We're all seeing it, and it's a new thing. It's a new thing, and it's only been around for a couple years, and um, it's really weird because it's really weird to see a bunch of sinners call out a bunch of other sinners as if they're not sinners, right? And it's like the thing we're warned against doing in Scripture, right, to point out the beam in someone's eye when you've got a moat in your own, or however that verse says it, top of my head, I can't remember, but you get the idea. And it's all law with no grace. And it demonstrates the problem in our culture right now, which is ideas of justice do not have Christ as a reference point. This is the biggest problem. Justice is good, social justice is good. The problem is, if the gospel is not the foundational motivator for justice, you don't have justice. You just have people judging each other who have no right to judge each other because they're all sinners. Cancel culture doesn't have that. It doesn't have the gospel. There's no redemption. It's you were caught doing something wrong. You're destroyed. You're canceled. That's it for you. There's no redemption. There's no forgiveness. Even if a person says, that's the irony, right? Even if someone says, oh my gosh, I can't believe I wrote that weird Facebook post 12 years ago. Well, I don't know, yeah, I've grown. Sorry, you're done. Your career is over, your life is over. I mean, it's, it's the opposite of the gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. Uh, and so, if that's where we are as a culture, well, let me say this, the culture will be the culture, and people who don't know Christ will do what they do, but as believers, we ought not to participate in that. Because one of the things I think we learn from Scripture is God holds out forgiveness to the worst of sinners. And Scripture shows us that there really is no sin too big to be forgiven. And I think we're at a place in our culture where um, some people think they're more righteous than God. And the gospel is so important to keep before us at all times. So here's an application point, okay? Ask God to forgive me. Ask God, excuse me, ask God to help me forgive. Even as I've been forgiven. I I just can't help but to think is when you meditate on the fact that God has forgiven you for so much. How can you act that way towards others? It's not that people don't do wrong things. They do. And sometimes they need to be confronted. But there has to be a path to redemption and reconciliation or it's godless. Whoever you need to forgive this morning, it might be a person, it might be a whole people group. Pray for the heart of Jesus in this matter. And the final petition is about being tested Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Although God never directly tempts believers, he does sometimes lead them into situations that test them. Right? Anybody have that testimony? God has a, there were times in your life where God tested your faith. Maybe it was a trial or some suffering. We can think of Job's testing, right? Boy, if... If that book isn't about testing, I don't know what it's about, among other things. God tested the faith of Job. 
The problem is, if a test lingers long enough, it can weaken your faith and make you vulnerable to temptation. Because over time, when you lose hope, you can, you, you can look for a way to cope. And often, our coping mechanisms, when we're spiritually weak from an enduring, lingering, long-lasting trial and test, can cause us to want to cope with sinful things, lusts, appetites, things like that. And so the meaning here most likely carries a sense of allow us to be spared from difficult circumstances that would tempt us to sin. That's, that's what that passage means. It's sort of a sticky wicket because it, trials can strengthen our faith. James 1 and 2 says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that testing of your faith produces steadfastness. At the same time, we should never pray to be brought into such situations, but should pray to be delivered from them because hardship and temptation make obedience difficult and sometimes results in sin. So we should pray to be delivered from temptation. We realize that we will have trials and tribulations in this world, but it is good and right to ask God to deliver us from such trials. Here's what scripture says about if you find yourself in a place of being tempted. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I think this phrase has been mashed and re- produced as, well, God doesn't put more on us than we're able to bear. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> Sometimes God absolutely puts things on you more than you're able to bear. But I think it's a misquoting of this verse. The context is temptation. That God does not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. And he knows what we can and can endure regarding temptation. And so what God promises is a way of escape. We find ourselves in a situation being tempted. God will give you a way of escape. Now, it often is up to us to turn the doorknob and walk out that door of escape. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we stay in that temptation and end up committing abominable sins in the sight of God because we refuse to walk out the exit door. But God does give us a way of escape so that we are able to endure temptations. So in closing, I could say a lot more, but I want to end here. I hope this has been helpful for you. I hope this series has been helpful, but I want to say this. This prayer, the Lord's Prayer, has been the bedrock of Christian prayers for two millennia. And we'd be foolish not to incorporate aspects of it, if not all aspects of it, into our relationship with God daily. You don't have to pray it as a model, wrote prayer word for word every day, but I think it gives us the building blocks of a healthy prayer life and relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, our Father in heaven, Lord, your name is holy. Your name is sacred, and we honor your name. There are times, I'm sure, where we have spoken of you flippantly and broken the commandment to honor 
your name, and we have probably taken your name in vain at times, even speaking of you in ways that do not honor and revere your holy character. But God, you are our Father, and so we ask you as sons and daughters and as children of the kingdom to draw us closer to you, that we may have a deep appreciation for your love for us as children and also a respect for the holiness of God, your holiness and righteousness. May our hearts pursue the kingdom first above all things, not just in prayer, but in our lives, in our pursuits, in our neighborhoods, communities, families, homes, schools, that we might be a prophetic voice, preaching also like Jesus and John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. May we be kingdom people, O God, and may we experience your forgiveness in such, such a way that we would pour out that same forgiveness to those who offend us and sin against us, that me, we might reflect the, the grace and character of our Savior Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would deliver each one of us from the testing, trials, and temptations we find ourselves in. Lord, we know that we will suffer in this world, that if Christ himself suffered, that we have fellowship with him through our own suffering and we are transformed and conformed to the likeness and image of Jesus through the trials we endure. But Father, we pray that don't leave us too long in our testing and that we might give in to temptation, but rather deliver us from evil, O God. Deliver us from the hardships and trials as they linger on too long and as they weaken our faith that we might be restored to perfect fellowship with you, O God. We pray all these things in the matchless and mighty name of your son, Jesus, who died for us. Amen.